Hello, I am Andrew Buck. And I am Stacy Kaliavakos. And we are both current students at the College of the Holy Cross, working as research associates for the New England Classical Journal, or NECJ for short. Today, we will be interviewing Professor Jackie Carlin, a former professor and graduate program director of classics at UMass Boston, and the author of Pliny's Women, Constructing Virtue and Creating Identity in the Roman World. We will also be interviewing Professor Peter Barrios Lech of UMass Boston, who along with Professor Anne Mahoney of Tufts University, has put together this forthcoming issue of NECJ in honor of Professor Carlin's contributions to classics. So as an opening question, uh, Professor Carlin, um, could you tell us a little bit about how it feels to have this issue written in the honor of the work you've done for classics? Um, and when did you first find out that this was being done? Uh, it, it's quite an incredible feeling and an amazing honor uh, for me, quite frankly. Um, and I was, I was very surprised, but not as surprised as Peter and his co-editor Anne Mahoney had intended for me to be. Uh, oddly enough, uh, I was reviewing applications for position that we had open, that we actually successfully filled with two different people, which was exciting for us. But I was looking through applications and on one of the CVs, I looked down and my name jumped out at me. And I thought, what, what is that? And it, it said this person was had written um, a, a piece for essays in honor of Jackie Carlin. And I thought, what? <laughs> and then I looked and it said uh, that the, the editors were Peter Barrioslek and Anne Mahoney. And I thought, oh my goodness. Um, and didn't I give you a hard time about that, Peter? <laughs> yeah, that's right. We, uh, we planned for a big surprise um, at a Kane meeting. By the way, this, uh, the idea for this began in 2018. And, um, and then of course, uh, the pandemic happened in 2020. So um, it's, it's much delayed, but um, we had managed to keep it under wraps for almost two years, which I think is not bad. It was going to get out sooner or later. Now, now see, I'm going to find out more about the backstory. <laughs> I, I had no idea about this. I, I confronted Peter at lunch one day when we were supposedly reviewing the applications. And we were reviewing the applications to decide who to interview. And I looked at him and I said, so you've been conspiring. And he looked <laughs> utterly shocked. What? What, what, what have I done wrong? Uh, well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we, and then you had to confess. <laughs> I did have to confess. I had the evidence there uh, manifestly in front of me. There was no option. <laughs> but, but I still don't know any other name of any other contributor. This part has been kept completely under wraps. I only know the one individual. Well, that's a really great story. And this sounds like a really exciting process. I know, Peter, you just talked about this a little bit, um, but if you can like expand a little more on the process of getting articles and what really inspired you to get this issue of NECJ together. Well, what inspired me was um, Jackie Carlin um, and the opportunity to work alongside her. I had seen the work that she and her colleague Emily uh, McDermott had done to build an MA program, which um, 
is unique because it teaches what I would say are innovative uh, pedagogical techniques, spoken Latin, particularly, or communicative Latin. And um, the program has graduated uh, over, four, uh, over 50 people uh, since its inception some 15 years ago. And inspired by you know, this program and just by Jackie, I decided to honor her with this, uh, with this volume. And it wasn't hard to find people to sign up to this. Uh, Jackie knows a, a lot of people. And so that wasn't the hard part. You, you know, the hard part was um, you know, dealing with the pandemic. And um, we had to change um, a publisher once or twice. And I'm so glad that we ended up with NECJ. It seems like uh, the perfect home for this, uh, as Jackie's been so active in the New England region. I think Jackie will be happy with the result because it does reflect, and, and I tried to make it reflect uh, her varied interests, uh, both in uh, Latin pedagogy and gender and antiquity. Um, and there's a third thing too, uh, Latin epistolography. And, and one of those, those big things that you talked about was this change in Latin pedagogy um, that Jackie really brought about. And so I guess, Professor Carlin, if you wouldn't mind talking about what were some of the changes in, in the classics world that that necessitated a new pedagogy. You talk about the importance of this pedagogy to keep Latin alive even, but it's been taught in a non-communicative way for some hundreds of years. And I, I, I guess that perhaps both of you had experience with a more traditional approach to teaching Latin. So, so what's going on in the culture of classics and, and students these days that, that required a new pedagogy to come about? Well, it's, it's interesting that we talk about this as new pedagogy because, of course, it's not new pedagogy. Um, for, for many, many hundreds of years, uh, Latin was taught communicatively. And, and all people who were educated, if, you know, at least formally educated, uh, were speakers of Latin. Uh, they were taught in Latin from the time they were six or seven years old when they, when they started their studies. We're talking about men, of course, at this point. Uh, beginning with the humanists, um, but even before that in, in medieval times as well. So what's happened really is a return to a communicative approach to teaching Latin. And I ended up involved in this because of Emily McDermott, who was a senior colleague of mine in the department, who had been to a spoken Latin program in the summer of 2005 and said, we need to do this. And she did that because her experience and mine following her in 2006, when I first attended a, a conventiculum, the conventiculum Latinum, uh, was that at the end of a week of speaking, I could read Latin, not translate it. I literally could read the language, which I'd never been able to do before, despite the fact that I had been studying and teaching Latin for 30 years at that point. So it was really shocking to me that this was true. And she and I, together founded our conventiculum, our summer program, because we said, you know, people need to do this. this. This just changes the entire way that you look at the language and your ability to really communicate with those ancient authors. So for me, um, it wasn't so much about the survival of Latin, although it certainly has become that, I think, in, in many ways. It was about actually being able to communicate with these ancient authors instead of, you know, trudging our way through translating them, that we could read their thoughts extensively because you can read a whole lot more if you can read and not translate. Uh, so I, 
that that to me was the revelation. And then we came back and we were still teaching Latin the same old way in the classroom. And we said, we can't do this. There's this huge disconnect between our own experience of the language and the way we're teaching the language. We have got to change the pedagogy of language instruction at UMass. And then the graduate program came shortly thereafter. And, and then we said, we have to train our teachers in this pedagogy. And it turns out, of course, that you can create a much livelier classroom if you're doing speaking in the classroom and communicative activities in the classroom, that that changes the way that students perceive their experience as well. And so that's, it turns out that it's also very, very heavily tied to enrollments. Um, the teachers that we have graduated who've gotten jobs in schools that permit them to use this communicative method, and it's not all of them by any means, sadly, have found that their enrollments have significantly increased uh, because the classroom is more engaging and is livelier and quite frankly, I think more equitable as well. Um, you're able to teach students of much, much different learning styles within the classroom and you're also enabling um, English language learners to have a better experience in a language classroom as well. So um, that's certainly been our experience. It's the pedagogical shift I think has to happen um, for the survival of Latin in the schools, very particularly. So it's a very roundabout way that we kind of came to this um, and yet um, we've created a revolution. Um, I called it a revolution actually when we first started but I think it's now a very strong movement within Latin pedagogy. I, I personally really think that like approach is really amazing. I've been studying Latin since like middle school and like the most like I've ever really spoken Latin is like either like reading texts out loud or like in middle school when my professor would come in, we'd be like, Salve Magistra. And she'd be like, Salve Te Discipuli. And like, that's really the extent of it. So we were just wondering if you could talk a little about a little bit about the response that you've gotten from students that you've been teaching in this way and other professors that you've taught to teach this way, because personally, I think that I would love to like be exposed to this kind of communicative Latin. I think that would really add another perspective to like my outlook as a classics major. And I think Andrew could agree with that. I would just say, first of all, that um, particularly at the beginning levels, there's no expectation really that the person respond extempore, have a conversation in Latin. I think maybe there's a, a misapprehension or maybe not, but I'm afraid that there's a misapprehension that uh, communicative Latin means having conversations in Latin in the classroom. And that's really not the case. Uh, at least in my experience, um, what happens is that there's a teacher who can speak Latin and the students are listening to the language. They are obviously reading lots of the language and they are producing it in controlled contexts. They might be asked to uh, write a paragraph uh, having been provided some vocabulary or maybe asked to describe an image or um, they might be asked to answer some simple questions like quid tibi nomen est and ubi est Roma. So with that said, I've found the response to be very positive. Yeah, and, and I, I would piggyback on that to say our goal is still the same. I think it's very, it's very important uh, for everyone out there to understand that our goal is not to create 
a, a group of Latin speakers and, you know, we'll go buy an island off the coast of Florida somewhere and, you know, we'll, we'll create the new Roman Empire uh, and everyone will be required to speak Latin. That, that, that's not the goal. The goal is for, for us to read these sources, to communicate with these ancient authors through reading. So that, that's the primary goal. And it's always been the primary goal. But what happens with the oral, aural approach, if you will, is that we create the opportunity for reading, reading fluency because you don't get it if you don't have the little homunculus or homuncula sitting on your shoulder, reading in your ear. And everybody looks at me a bit strangely, but I think most of us, when we read, have a voice in our head that's reading to us particularly when we're doing close reading. I mean, you can do quick reading and not have that all the time, but it's there. And what it helps us to do is to process what we're reading in phrases, uh, which is the only way to become fluent. You can't, you can't read word for word. It has to be in phrases. That's how the brain processes. Without that voice, we're in real trouble. Our teachers that go out into the classroom uh, are, tend to speak a lot of Latin in the front of the classroom but they do not, I don't think there's a single one of them that requires spoken Latin as a response. And that's good because there's a, that's a high pressure environment to require that kind of response. Um, what they're looking for is comprehension. Um, and obviously that's much more important. We've made, it, we've made a lot of headway in, the, in secondary school classrooms and there's a, there's a big push. Uh, there are still a lot of very traditional secondary school classrooms, for sure, but there's a big push across the country to move toward um, a more communicative environment. That's considerably less so at the university level, and I, that's, that's going to take time, and it, it may take a generational shift before it really uh, takes root. But meanwhile, people can come to the Conventicular Bostoniense and get exposed to speaking Latin. And there are lots of Latin speaking groups around now as well. I, I find it interesting because our, our last um, podcast we did with professors Libatica and Machado here at Holy Cross was about um, content-based instruction, um, which is another pedagogical system. Um, so it seems like we have a theme developing <laughs> for the podcast. But um, I was wondering if you had any uh, particular stories from the classroom of of times when you saw this, this communicative Latin really working and, and students engaging with it in a, in a, in a new and, and exciting way? I can just say from recent experience, I teach mostly master's students. Um, we do uh, speak Latin in the classroom. And one of the things that really strikes me is how uh, people at the very beginning are skeptical about speaking Latin. But then by the end of their first semester, our usually completely won over. They, they see the value in it and they see that it's fun. It's also particularly rewarding to see people advance in their fluency. Um, so that recently, uh, one of my students uh, wrote a fabulous presentation in Latin uh, on Hong Kong. She basically did a travel brochure and she described uh, the city in, uh, in Latin and it was elegant Latin. And so to see that kind of progress is, is extremely rewarding, but also just generally to see people change their minds. My very last semester of teaching, I was able to teach a graduate level Cicero class in an active environment. Uh, we, read our, we read our tales off. We read all sorts of uh, works, complete works. 
and discuss them in Latin. And it really did permit us to engage really deeply with the text, you know, to say in Latin, okay, why did Cicero choose this word? And how is this word different than some other word? And um, it just, I, I thought, allowed us to get more deeply into who Cicero was as a person, not just to be so tied up with, you know, what grammatical form is this, but rather to say, what is he saying? And how is he saying it? And why is he saying it in this way? And I, I do think that that kind of fluency um, with the language is promoted with speaking and listening. I, I find that really interesting because the question that, that I was thinking of is someone who might disagree with the communicative Latin approach might make the argument that that it would be detrimental to students' close reading of text or something like that, right? Because they're reading in these phrases that you talk about and on this bigger scale um, and not the word-by-word -word approach, which might lend itself to that close reading. So I, I think it's great when you say um, and, and describe how these students are able to really engage with the text um, and to actually understand the language more, more fully um, that way. And, and a lot of it has to do with how much reading you can assign. I, I can't assign a student to, to you know, go ahead and read, say, uh, half of a speech of Cicero. Actually, I had them read sort of half of two speeches of Cicero in most weeks to, so that we can compare them. I can't have them translate all of that. I mean, it's, it's impossible. It's just too much. But if they're reading it and not translating it, I can ask them to do that. I can say, okay, go and read it. And, and let's talk about the sticky parts. A lot of the time we would come back to the classroom and say, okay, where did you have difficulty here as we're reading, as we're going through? And so we can go and do a close reading of a difficult passage easily enough. Uh, but getting that volume of reading in is what allows people to get a much better sense of the work itself, um, the intent of the author, the rhetorical nature of, of the content. All of that, I think, is much, much more easily gained if you can read more volume. And the only way to do that is to teach reading skills. What do you think, Peter? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think um, we're talking about uh, reading for the big picture and then drilling down on the details. And I think that, you know, with our method, we are definitely teaching the student to do both, uh, both to read lots of Latin and to, you know, for instance, if you're reading Libby, get a sense of the way the narrative is structured, but also to uh, drill down and look at uh, particular word choices, why, you know, Libby is using this word or, and not that word. And I think that kind of sensitivity to linguistic detail only comes if you're already really quite conversant with the language and have read lots of it. I just, I really love that. I think both of you have really won me over um, to this type of pedagogy. And I really hope that um, it kind of takes off. Well, and I also think that, that it can be done sort of in tandem, right? You can get the, ver the morphology in, into your everyday interaction with students I taught high school for many years before I uh, went back and did graduate work to become a college professor. And I had many students who were excellent at their paradigms. They could decline and conjugate like crazy, but then they would not recognize the forms when they were reading them um, in context. Um, and I, I do think that there is that dissociation because uh, one thing is implicit knowledge and the other is explicit knowledge. And it turns out, I've just been doing this reading, so forgive me, um, that those things are stored in different parts of the brain. 
Who knew mm. that implicit knowledge and explicit knowledge are not in the same place? So it's, they don't get tied together um, in a natural way. They get tied together through processing language. Uh, both are necessary, and particularly in adult learners, mm. um, but they are not naturally uh, symbiotic. I really loved like talking about this and like hearing about it from both of you. But just to switch gears briefly, Peter wrote a really lovely introduction uh, for this issue of NECJ about you and your work, uh, Jackie. And something that Andrew and I were really interested in was your work with Pliny and um, gender and the field of classics. So we were wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how you've seen Pliny studies develop throughout your career and gender and classics develop in general. That, that's been quite an interesting journey because I first got interested in the way women were used to portray men in ancient literature when I was a graduate student at Boston University. And um, I thought I would do a period study uh, that I would look at Tacitus and Pliny and maybe Juvenal, maybe Suetonius, that sort of that late first, early second century to see how they used women to portray men. Um, and then when I started doing the research, I realized that no one had done anything with the women in Pliny. And I was sure that I must have missed some fundamental work in German that <laughs> I just never found. Um, but it turned out that nobody had actually done anything. So I switched gears and started intently then looking at um, the women in Pliny. And it, it was, a, what I ended up doing was a hybrid study. It was, it was both prospographical um, and literary. Uh, I wanted to know who these women were because with Pliny, of course, they're real women. This is not the novel. Um, it's Pliny's life. And who were these women and wh what, what, did, what did they matter to him? And how did they contribute to what was clearly an effort in his letters at presenting, you know, Pliny as this ideal human being, sort of the perfect Roman um, upperclassman. And what I found was that they did indeed do exactly this. It, he had chosen women very specifically to associate himself with. Um, and, and my book on those women uh, was precisely that. I mean, sort of an, an investigation of who are they and what do they, what do they provide for him? But in the process of doing that, uh, I also discovered that he uses very different virtue language to talk about men as opposed to women unless he wants to really tie those women to him in some special way, in which, in which case he starts to use, he kind of spills over a little bit into the kind of language he would use to praise men. So women who resemble their fathers, for example, or who resemble their husbands, take on the virtues of their fathers and their husbands. This, I think, is, is really fascinating um, that, that um, th and there is some spillover in the opposite direction, too, which I think is intriguing as well. The term castitas, for example, um, is not used of men before Pliny's time. It's, it's really only used of women. But after Pliny, it will be used of men as well. Not in the same way, not talking about sexual purity, but talking about the purity of character that one is supposed to display. So there is some permeability between the characterizations of men and women, but, uh, but, not, but not really in terms of the fundamentals. So castitas is used, but 
its meaning changes. Um, and you can have fortitudo, but only if it's, it's in regards to looking after your men. So I got thoroughly intrigued with, with that and with that, that kind of, of virtue language. But on, on the back burner, and it's been on the back burner for too long, for me is, is a, a book that will talk about how, how men and women under the principate both have to change the way they present their virtue, uh, have to change the way they present their status and, and what defines an elite man or woman, uh, because you can no longer too closely resemble the emperor or the emperor's wife without getting yourself into some really hot water. I have to say though, that in, in doing my, my work on Pliny's women, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, when I wrote that book on Pliny, when I wrote the dissertation first and then the book, there weren't very many studies about Pliny. There were, there were a few talking about Pliny's style. Um, there'd been some early work on Pliny's style, but the rest of it had been sort of data mining, looking for bits of important sociological information in Pliny or historical bits. And there hadn't been much consideration of Pliny as a literary author um, or, or the letters as a literary work. And that now has thankfully changed um, with the work of people like Roy Gibson and Christopher Witten um, and any number of others as well. Can't name them all because I'll never manage to name them all, but there are a number of monographs out now uh, for Pliny. Um, there are, there's a Cambridge green and yellow um, for book two, another one coming for book six. So a lot of things have changed in Pliny and studies. Um, and I'm, it's, it's exciting to see it happening. And there are a lot of young scholars working, working on him as well. Is, is there any particular exciting work you see going on now in the field um, that, that you've been reading or following? Well, and I'm not as immersed in Pliny studies as, as Jackie is. Um, although I will say um, there's some interesting social linguistic studies of the major epistolographic corpora, so Cicero, Pliny, and Fronto, that look at how they use code switching. There's a, there's a whole book on code switching by Alex uh, Mullen, I think, and Olivia Elder, and that also takes a look at Pliny. And there's also uh, some work on politeness in uh, the letters. This is work done by John Hall for Cicero in particular, um, that looks at how certain formulas or politeness formulas can be used to create respectful distance or to sort of close down distance between two people and how Cicero very carefully deploys these politeness formula depending on his addressee. For, for me, it really is looking, the looking at Pliny as a, as a literary work. And, and that mean, by that, I mean um, the arrangement of the letters within a book or the, the sort of larger scope of the cross-referencing that happens uh, between books. I just was at a, a attended a talk by Roy Gibson, who was talking about the fact that Pliny avoids discussing Campania, um, which had been, of course, so prominent in um, in Cicero's time among the elite, except for Book Six, where the Vesuvius letters are. That that really Campania is nowhere else in the letters, and isn't that interesting? Particularly because um, the mentions of it in Book Six are, of course, this. The, the horrible eruption of Mount Vesuvius, but also the illness of his wife. So the references are very negative. And, and he and I were trying to suss out what, the, what, what that could be all about. What's the aversion to Campania? Is it just that, you know, he has PTSD from 
the eruption of Mount Vesuvius? Or is something else going on? Maybe the fact that, you know, it used to be kind of a the summer resort for all the political elite in the late Republic. And maybe it still has that kind of identity because they were, they were undoubtedly at dinner parties with one another, you know, discussing how to support one another in the next election. So maybe it has too many political overtones for Pliny to want to be associated with it. Who knows, right? Well, it's obvious that both of you have made incredible contributions to the field of classics and I speak for both of us in saying that we're really lucky to have talked to both of you. Um, so just in closing, um, if you could just talk a little bit about your hopes and visions for the future of the field and where you hope that things will go in like the next decade or so. I'll just preface by saying that we, we are definitely seeing a communicative Latin spread in the United States, also around the world. I remember when I started this job in 2011, there might have been a handful of summer Latin programs. Now there are around 30 across the world. And also in, in the university college level, there is change too. Uh, Justin Slocum Bailey in a recent article says, counts at least 19 you know, higher education institutions like UMass Boston where spoken Latin is used. So these are very encouraging numbers. And I think my vision is for that just to, that trend to continue. And I also, think that if it does continue in that way, um, it'll just become normal. And that is going to pretend great things for, for Latin in general, because it, it means that, you know, we'll be able to get people interested and um, retain students from year to year. I, I would concur. Well, when I, when I wrote the article that is being reproduced in this volume back in 2013, which the idea of thinking about language pedagogy um, particularly the research around language pedagogy was sort of out of the blue, particularly in the teaching of Latin. Um, and but the result has been that there are many articles now. There are many more people looking into how how we can alter Latin pedagogy to get it more in line with what the research suggests to us, um, and to make it more accessible and more engaging for our students. And so that that's my hope. And, and I, I have to tell you, in the in the not yet 10 years since that's happened, there's been a great deal of interest and a real shift that's happening in pedagogy. And I, I think that, you know, I've said in the past, get on the train or get off the tracks. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was it was really a pleasure to talk with both of you. Thank you for listening to the SnackJ podcast. We would like to thank Professors Carlin and Barrio Sletch for joining us. We would also like to thank Mary McLeod and David Banville and the staff of the Multimedia Resource Center at Holy Cross for their assistance in the production of this podcast. We would also like to thank the J.D. Power Center for Liberal Arts in the World for providing the funding to make this podcast possible. The music we use is entitled Just a Waltz by Elena Smirnova, from the freemusicarchive.com and is licensed under an attribution 4.0 international license.